of the Family Law Podcast, coming to you as the nights draw in and winter approaches. This week we're discussing deprivation of liberty, or doles, particularly in light of the Supreme Court's decision in RE-T, judgment in which was handed down on 30th July this year. Luckily for you, dear listeners, my two learned guests have read the 67-page behemoth so you don't have to. I am joined today by Jennifer Swan and Catherine Ellis, two of Pump Court's leading public law specialists, Indeed, the Legal 500 tells us that both Catherine and Jenny are leading juniors, so there you go. Listeners may recall Catherine from a previous podcast on fabricated or induced illness in children proceedings, and you may recall Jennifer from our overview in March this year of international relocation. Welcome back both. Good afternoon. Hi, and thank you. Thanks um, for joining me uh, to discuss to discuss dolls, and I, th- I think I'm just going to crack on and Jenny, we talk about dolls. Uh, maybe help us with what that means. Dolls. So dolls, as you said in the introduction, it stands for Deprivation of Liberty Safeguards. So that's, I mean, that's the starting point. And it's an order and it's made by a high court judge. Um, and it authorises the, the local authority uh, in our situation to restrict a child's liberty uh, in a placement And the interesting thing about restriction of liberty in this context is that it's an order that's made under the inherent jurisdiction um, of the High Court rather than under the Children Act. So it doesn't actually have a statutory basis. Um, It is it's a permissive order and similar to the statutory order. So it gives the local authority um, permission to restrict this child's liberty, the child's liberty. Uh, It doesn't compel them to. But it is. You know, it, it's a use of the inherent jurisdiction, which is becoming much more common, and Catherine's going to talk about that later. Uh, and it's quite interesting to think about what deprivation of liberty actually means in the context of a child, because obviously it's very different to yeah. an adult. Yes, and when we're saying child, uh, you know best than me, but generally we see doll's cases involving teenagers, don't we? Yes, generally, because, well... When you're looking at a deprivation, when you're looking at dolls for a child, the comparison is a child of a similar age, background, level, maturity, etc. So you're not going to a, a young child who is in any kind of placement where they're under supervision, uh, and that's what the courts deemed important, considering whether they're under constant supervision or monitoring. It is not unusual for a child who's under 10, for example, in any situation, even if they're with their family, to be under that kind of supervision. Uh, so their liberty is not being, they're not being, de- excuse me, deprived of their liberty. It's when you get to children who are over 10, sort of 12, 13, reaching adolescence, when you would normally expect a child in a normal uh, setting to have freedom, some freedom, uh, and that's when you have to start considering the differences perhaps in the situation that you're dealing with mm. uh, if you're looking at a doll's case um, you that's the comparator you compare it with another child who is in that situation in a normal in inverted commas um, family all right so so if we're talking about being deprived of the liberty if we're talking about taking that from a child what, what do we really mean 
So it, it, sometimes it'll be super obvious if a child's being deprived of their liberty. Um, so if they're in a secure accommodation unit, for example, um, but it's not always as clear cut. So the things to look out for, and Catherine and I discussed this, it's obviously not an exhaustive list, um, but it's you know, things, things that you can look out for. Uh, so physical restraint is a really obvious one. Um, it sort of does what it says on the tin, uh, locked doors, and um, some homes do have to use physical restraints, and that is a deprivation of liberty, obviously. Uh, medication being administered, for example. Uh, chemical restriction, which sounds horrifying, but if, you know, if a child for any reason has to be sedated, uh, for example, that is a restriction of their liberty. Uh, look at the adult supervision that they are subject to. So is it one-to-one, two-to-one, more than that? Uh, supervision, is it 24 hours a day? Do they have CCTV in their rooms, for example? Do they have waking nights visits, things like that? All of those things you obviously wouldn't be expecting in a normal, in inverted commas, uh, family environment. Um, access to technology, phones, communications, things like that. Is it monitored? Are they restricted? The apps they can use? <coughs> That's presumably fairly balanced because I imagine a lot of parents listening would try and restrict apps on their children's phones. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's the thing, and it, it is that's what I mean. It, it's a, it's a comparator, um, mm. but if you, you know, if it's an older teenager uh, and they don't have any access, you know, they can't contact their friends by WhatsApp, for example. That's something that's probably slightly more unusual, and mm. it's not uncommon in residential units for the number of apps that can be used for example to be restricted help, help me as a, as a relative moron on this subject how if if um the local authority have a, a, a care order interim care order they've got parental responsibility how does the need for the court's permission to restrict liberty relate to parental responsibility and the exercise thereof um the local authority actually can't consent to a deprivation of liberty on behalf of the child that's looked after. And so, and that's, the local authorities are realizing this more and more. And we were actually just having this discussion before we started. So there is, there are a lot more dolls cases than there used to be because local authorities are sort of realizing, and everybody's realizing um, that children who, not your sort of classic secure accommodation children, other children who are in residential settings, which are restrictive, um, for usually for really good reason, um, just because the local authority and perhaps everybody agrees that it's in their interest to be there doesn't mean that it's okay and the court still needs to have some oversight. Mm. Um, you, sorry, you, meant, you mentioned secure accommodation. It, secure accommodation. It's tickled something in my brain, um, Section 25 of the Children Act. Um, mm-hmm. How does that interrelate with dolls uh, you, you talk about the court exercising its inherent jurisdiction well there's a statutory power isn't there under section 25 yeah and i think in an ideal world um there'd be a lot more section 25 applications and a lot fewer dolls applications um the dolls are used sometimes it's not appropriate for a section 25 application uh, so for example there are cases where children for example, have very specific and high level needs um, and they are in a residential setting and their doors are locked, say, for example, for their own safety. They're not necessarily going to satisfy the Section 25 criteria. They're not going to abscond, they're not going to harm themselves and things like that. But 
they still need their liberty is still being they're still being deprived of their liberty uh, and even if they did have to be physically restrained for example a secure accommodation placement isn't necessarily going to be in their best interest from a welfare perspective so it's that some cases secure accommodation is not appropriate more often it is the case that secure accommodation simply isn't available and that's the really sad situation at the moment is that there's some horrifying statistic that I can't pull off the top of my head um, but basically demand far far outstrips supply. Well, it feels and like it every every judgment Mr Justice McDonald gives is at the moment is is protesting that. Yeah and they've been and the courts have actually been banging this drum since I think 2017 longer but re, there was a case called WeG and I think 2017 but I may be wrong about that um and yeah the court's been saying pretty much constantly we can't be we you can't keep asking us to do this we need more resources and um yeah it's not happening so if the dolls in her jurisdiction power supplements section 25 um is there as a safety net and catherine you've been you've been extremely outrageously quiet so far We've been talking about different situations and certainly from my experience doing this work, often you see children in children's homes, not necessarily foster placements. Is that not a secure accommodation situation as well? Yes, I suppose in an, in an unofficial way, all, most children's homes, if not all, are secure and children aren't necessarily permitted to leave or to go outside unsupervised. But when we are looking at secure accommodation for the purposes of Section 25 of the Children Act or children's homes for the purposes of a doll's application, secure accommodation is defined in the Children Act as being accommodation in England or Scotland provided for the purpose of restricting liberty. Whereas children's homes are defined really in Section 1 of the Care Standards Act as an establishment in England um, is classed as a children's home if it provides care and accommodation wholly or mainly for children. Um, a children's home might offer therapeutic services, education, etc., and it may have secure elements to it, but it's not solely for the purpose of restricting the liberty of the child. In the RE-T case, which I'm going to come on to in a moment, um, Lady Black did, did look at this issue and uh, she came to the conclusion that section 25 should not be too widely interpreted, that the focus should be on the accommodation itself and the purpose for which it's provided rather than the regime in the accommodation. So um, a, a sort of a Tracy Beaker situation isn't gonna be section 25? I guess not. <laughs> the characteristics of, of approved secure children's homes are set out in the judgment of RET at paragraph 135. Um, I won't go into great detail of them, but, but the locked setting, the sort of airlock doors, as you were when people mm. come in and out. Um, also in secure accommodation, some of the children in the beds in those homes are from the criminal justice system and are not simply there for welfare reasons. Um, they're usually divided into welfare beds and justice beds. Um, that might be a good juncture for me to, to launch into. I was I was going to ask if you wouldn't mind <laughs> launching into ET. Yes. 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 So it, it was a case that really through the different courts, uh, it had moved upwards through. It had been within the court arena, I think, from perhaps 2017, um, reached the Supreme Court uh, by a way of an appeal by T, the young person, um, 
whose arguments were that the High Court could not have recourse to its inherent jurisdiction to make an order depriving a, a young person of liberty in her circumstances for three reasons. It was argued that Section 100 of the Children Act bars it. Um, it was argued that the inherent jurisdiction couldn't be used in a way to cut across the statutory scheme in the Children Act, Section 25 scheme. Uh, and thirdly, that deprivation of liberty authorised under the inherent jurisdiction would fall foul of Article 5 in that no one should be deprived of their liberty save in accordance with the procedure prescribed by law. That was the argument supporting the first question, but there was also a second argument from um, the appellant in Reti, which was that the court couldn't make an order depriving her of her liberty when she consented to that regime. In terms of the facts, um, she was a child who previously spent time in approved secure accommodation, um, covered by the Welsh equivalent of Section 25, and the, the local authority and the child were Welsh in the case. Um, due to her needs, the local authority had had to source alternative accommodation to her previous secure um, placement. So there was a placement referred to as placement one in the judgment, which was neither registered as a children's home nor approved by the Secretary of State to use as secure accommodation. Uh, and, the, and this was authorised at the time by Mr Justice Mostyn. That placement then broke down and she was moved to placement two, which was registered as a children's home but not authorised by the Secretary of State as a secure accommodation. Now, T's position was that she consented to this regime and that she had capacity to consent. But in the High Court, Mr Justice Mostyn found that her consent did not have the authentic and enduring quality necessary for the purposes of Article 5. Um, but she did re-raise the arguments uh, on appeal. By the time the appeal came to be heard in the Supreme Court, T um, was living independently and was in employment. The issues were in fact academic in respect of her. But of course, as Jennifer has highlighted, this issue over the last few years has, has affected a really significant number of children. So there was a wider public interest in the appeal being heard. And what you see in the case, if you are ever minded to read it, if you're having trouble sleeping, for example, um, there is no real description of T's particular needs in the case. And that's probably because it was academic by the time it was heard. But what we do see in a lot of the cases that are coming before the High Court, the specific vulnerabilities for some of the children in these cases are extremely sad and troubling. They're very vulnerable children with significant attachment issues, who've suffered trauma. They um, in a number of these cases, you see references at attempts to suicide, children using anything they can find as ligatures on themselves, have had experience of a case of a child swallowing batteries. That's at the extreme end. Um, who, the, the local authorities and the courts are trying to protect these children from the feelings that they have towards themselves. You might also have, at different end of the scale, you have children who are, might be likely to harm themselves or others, perhaps by being involved uh, by virtue of being involved in a criminality or gang culture uh, or the taking into care because they're beyond parental control. What unites them is that they are all vulnerable and they're vulnerable to, to, to harm. And the backdrop to the litigation was really the, the shortage of provision for children and young people uh, who have these needs. Uh, I think in terms of secure accommodation, the figure is, I think it's a single figure of, of establishments in, the, in, in England uh, and perhaps Scotland. Uh, so so really to say that the supply outstrips the, de uh, sorry, the demand outstrips the, the supplies is almost an understatement. Um, 
Riti um, did not concern placement of children in other than the equivalent of secure accommodation. So different considerations will apply if an application is only directed towards the deprivation of liberty. In the judgment, the judgment of Lady Black is extremely lengthy and comprehensive. It's not necessarily the easiest read, but if you are somebody who is having to approach one of these cases, um, there are paragraphs within the judgment that cover all sorts of different parts of the law, both in England and in Wales. The reason the English uh, law became relevant uh, is because the T herself was placed in an English placement and therefore the, the English law came into play. Um, but Lady Black, she deals with the interrelation between England and Wales at paragraphs 24 to 27. Just going to, to list the various paragraphs <laughs> so that people uh, listening can go, go directly to them if they need them. She deals with the relevant provisions, the statutes and regulations in both jurisdictions at paragraph 28. At paragraphs 29 to 38, she de deals with the local authorities' duties to children, including relevant regulations, again, in both uh, jurisdictions. She deals with the provisions dealing with secure accommodation, at paragraphs 39 to 49, um, and both the primary and secondary legislation in both England and Wales underpins that. She tackles children's homes, the difference between unregistered and unregulated homes, which um, so politely uh, flags up that perhaps some of us have been using uh, the incorrect uh, lingo for, for a little while. But in short, unregistered relates to a children's home, which should be registered, but is not. And she points out that all children's homes are regulated, even if they are not registered. And unregulated relates to a place placement which is not required to register because it doesn't come within the definition of a children's home. She looks at section 100 of the Children Act and the inherent jurisdiction, and that's at paragraph 63 to 80. There is a huge amount of detail of the history that led to um, section 100 of the Children Act. Um, and for those that aren't familiar, section 100 of the Children Act is the uh, statutory provision that prevents uh, local authorities having recourse to the high court's inherent jurisdiction to achieve an outcome that it could achieve by way of a, a different order. Uh, and obviously local authorities have to obtain leave under section 100 in order to proceed with a doll's application. If we were to try and um, hone in on, on, on what the main questions were for Riti in terms of what the court was deciding, what would you say? So, uh, from paragraph 106 onwards, these issues are all discussed. And in short, the answer to the questions, can the High Court use its inherent jurisdiction to approve uh, these sorts of placement? Yes, it can. <laughs> uh, and can the High Court still uh, authorise a deprivation of liberty in one of these placements if the child or young person concerned is consenting? Yes, it can. <laughs> um, in fact, going into a little more, more detail as to the arguments that were raised, so question one about the use of the inherent jurisdiction, um, Lady Black considered whether Section 100 of the Children Act bar, barred the use of the inherent jurisdiction in these circumstances uh, at paragraph 21. I do not consider that the express terms of Section 100 were an obstacle to the local authority application under the inherent jurisdiction. She flagged up that an application under Section 25 could not be made because there was no approved accommodation available. And there were no means by which the local authority could seek the authorization it required other than under the inherent jurisdiction. The next argument that was raised by the appellant was whether it cut across the statutory scheme. Um, it's dealt with at the same time as the other argument, which was that it, 
that the use of the inherent jurisdiction is not a procedure prescribed by law as required by Article 5. Um, they were dealt with together. Reference was made to the practice guidance um, set out by the President of Family Division in November 2019, um, which guides establishments to, towards making an application to register as soon as possible after a child is placed. Um, for the reasons I've already mentioned, Lady Black found that secure accommodation should not be interpreted too widely. Um, accommodation outside of a purpose-built unit will usually have as its primary purpose the provision of care and or treatment for the child, rather than preventing the child absconding or causing harm to themselves or others. And so she found that this limited the class of placements that could properly be termed as secure accommodation within Section 25. And where the placement is not secure accommodation, there's no question of the use of the inherent jurisdiction cutting across the statutory scheme. But she did also go on to consider placements which would satisfy the Section 25 criteria save that the Secretary of State has not authorised them to be used as so. And she did recognise that that was not quite such a straightforward uh, answer in terms of cutting across the statutory scheme, but ultimately, paragraph 141, she says, it seems to me that it's unthinkable that the High Court, with its long established role in protecting children, should have no means to keep these unfortunate children and others who may be at risk from them safe from extreme harm, in some cases death. If the local authority cannot apply for an order under Section 25 because there is no Section 25 compliance secure accommodation available, I would accept that the inherent jurisdiction can and will have to be used to fill that gap without clashing impermissibly with the statutory scheme. However, she did recognise that important safeguards that come with registration would be absent in those circumstances and therefore really one of the thrusts of RE-T that's leading to a lot of applications, as I understand it in the High Court now, is that if such an authorization was made, the, the practice guidance provides that registration is sought expeditiously and the court is obliged to monitor the progress of the application for registration. So if you're representing a local authority and you're placing an unregistered placement, that placement will need to take steps to, um, to apply for registration. Also, once the if if the authorization is made for the child to be placed there the local authority is under a duty to notify Ofsted um, because it is a criminal offense to carry on a, a, an unregistered children's home um, the coming finally onto the article 5 argument which again was was pretty much kicked out by the uh, <laughs> by lady black um, she commented as to the fact that the law um, or it's unnecessary for Article 5 purposes for the law to be contained in statute or regulations and that there's a considerable body of case law demonstrating the use of the inherent jurisdiction and appropriate procedural safeguards, i.e. the compliance with the, the practice guidance has been built into the application process. Oh, sorry, Catherine, go on. Well, it, I, I also need to deal with the consent issue, but perhaps I could come on to that in a moment. <laughs> well, no, 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 please, please. I, I, I was only going to ask you if... Um, if you could sort of summarise perhaps the wider implications that you thought, but I, I'm I'm interrupting. <laughs> please fin please finish with what the court actually did. <laughs> um, really, just on the consent issue, it was it was dealt with rather marginally in the case. Um, does the consent of a young person to the arrangements uh, mean that the court doesn't make an order? Uh, no, it, the arguments, T's arguments were 
rejected as being overly simplistic. Um, but also the court pointed out that if somebody consents to a regime, then it's not a deprivation of their liberty. Uh, and in fact, all the High Court does is authorise the deprivation of liberty. Um, it doesn't direct it. Um, so uh, consent was a, whether a child consents is a factor of the court to take into consideration, um, but it won't be determinative. Thank you, Catherine. I, if we can then just look at what you would say that the wider implications were of Riti. Well, I'd say that the wider implications are that it's been confirmed by the Supreme Court that the High Court is able to use its inherent jurisdiction to protect children in this position. Um, Lord Stevens was at pains to point out that nothing in the case should be taken as a wider ranging precedent for the use of the inherent jurisdiction, notwithstanding that the court is aware that some other criminal offence may be committed. Um, and that touches on that issue about a, a criminal offence being committed by somebody running a child, children's home that's not registered. Um, it should not be taken as authority for any wider um, authorisation by the High Court of Criminal Offences. Um, but in short, the consent of a young person whilst relevant will not be determinative of any uh, decision by the High Court to authorise um, deprivation of liberty uh, and placements that are not registered uh, can be authorised in terms of the, the High Court but they must then go through the registration process and if that registration process fails uh, then the court will have to review um, whether or not uh, the, the child uh, the, the authorisation should be given for the child to be placed there. Would you do you have any um before I I put Jenny on the spot because she's she I, I know that she's she's feels like she's missing out now. Do you I'm have any final <laughs> Do you have any final observations, Catherine, on Riti and what it might mean? Um, not not really as such. There is some further High Court case law that has um, appeared since Riti. Um, which is also relevant, which I think we're going to touch on at the end of the podcast. Um, but really, my reading of it is that it didn't in any particular way change the law. Um, Lady Arden encapsulates it quite nicely at, at paragraph 193, um, saying it's always going to be a case of the court being satisfied that the unregistered home will meet the child's needs and that there is no realistic alternative to the placement and imposing the strict conditions set out in the president's guidance with which all concerned are familiar. And I think that paragraph really just puts it in a nutshell. Mm. Um, but it doesn't sound uh, like much has changed from the way that, that some of us were practicing previously. <laughs> in, within 67 pages of judgment as well. Yes. <laughs> all right, uh, over to you, Jenny. If we're, we're, we're approaching a Declaration of Liberty safeguards case, um, what what should you do what can you do any tips pointers um thanks for asking um they are i mean they are trick they're such tricky cases and one of the things that catherine raised when when you're discussing reti um you're that there are quite often no options well you you have the one option and it's quite often a substandard option um, and so the court's very often in a position where they're essentially presented with a fait accompli uh, and it, it's that it's that or nothing. And uh, so they are quite disheartening, to be honest, um, regardless of which party you're representing. Um, and quite often there'll be a level of agreement, um, which is unlike some sort of public law cases. Um, a lot of the time you'll be in a situation where all parties agree that the child can't 
be at home, for example, because they are, you know, their needs so clearly can't be met there. Um, and, you know, I think the first thing to think about is, you know, what kind of placement are you actually looking at? Because they, you know, a lot of them are residential placements, which aren't just aren't used for secure accommodation. And that's, you can, you can get your head around that. But there are some weird and wonderful things that local authorities have had to resort to um, for unregulated placements. So things like supported living that's normally used for older children for example staffed by local authority staff um holiday homes static caravans you know quite quite strange uh houseboats that was one of Catherine's examples earlier uh it would be hilarious if it wasn't so tragic um hospitals that's a really tragic one um and there is um we were talking earlier about one case where a child was actually placed at home unusually, but the home was staffed by um, local authority. So, you know, the local authority provided staff for the home to keep that young person safe. And so, you know, the local authorities, because of the lack of resources, have had to come up with some pretty creative solutions, but they are, you're going to be very lucky if you get a placement which meets all of these children's, you know, often, well, almost exclusively very complex needs. So if you are, when, you, when you're starting to consider these cases, I suppose the first, the starting point is, what does this, what does this child need? What are this child's specialist needs? And considering whether you need any further expert evidence. So, you know, you may have um, evidence from treating doctors, treating psychs, do you need something else? Are there gaps to be plugged? And because that question needs to be considered as soon as possible, uh, effectively. And one thing you can also consider is whether there needs to be a mental health assessment, because uh, if children are actually sectioned, um, then the dolls, uh, dolls part of it falls away. So identifying the child's needs, basically. And then you look at the placement uh, that's proposed, or any one of the weird and wonderful placements, and you ask yourself, how does that placement meet these, you know, this child's identified needs? And it's a cross-check. Um, in the same way that we're quite used to doing with public law cases. Um, it is very likely that the child's needs will be much more complicated uh, than we're used to. Um, so a placement is almost certainly not going to meet all of the needs. Can the local authority buy in the additional support, for example? If not, why not? Um, those are all questions that can be asked. And it's good to have these questions in mind if you're for a parent or for a child, uh, but also if you're for the local authority, uh, anticipating that those questions are going to be asked. You may want to know if you're for the parent or child, what searches the local authority have undertaken to try and find these placements. Um, it, they will inevitably be nationwide searches, one would hope. Um, so it's, you know, it, it's, it, you know, you're, you're cross-checking the needs, the placements, uh, things like that and one of the things to also think about and I think this falls people are surprised when they have to when they're first faced with a case like this and thinking about the practicalities because the placements are very very often miles away from family okay? and sometimes that's deliberate um, as Catherine was saying, some children are at risk from exploitation um, and a placement that's far away is 
a sometimes a conscious choice and um, but quite often as with everything else in these kind of cases it's necessity so you're thinking about family contact and particularly with quite vulnerable families how are you going to get this family physically to see this child I had a case once where the family were in Essex and the placement was in Blackburn you know this, <laughs> that's not that's not a journey that you're going to make um you know that's not just bomber travel warrants you know at the mum dad and brother and they can make their merry way that's really thinking about the support you can offer taxis overnight accommodation things like that so particularly if you're for parents I guess that and of course the child you need to be thinking about practically how is it your client can physically get to see their child plugging the gaps with um remote contacts so videos things like that um but it is you know it, it can be it can be a very tricky situation to balance. And I think that just thinking about those practicalities uh, can make it a lot easier um, further down the line, drawing it to the court's attention because it's, you know, it's a huge financial, but it's a huge burden mm. um, on local authorities. I think it's fair to be you know, quite balanced about it. Mm. Um, Catherine, we've thought about our application. We've done all the investigations that, that Jenny said. Um, Particularly, you mentioned some recent case law is perhaps illustrating what the court might do. I wonder whether you, you could just take us through that. Yeah, so there was, um, thanks Mark, there was a, a quite interesting case of um, Sir Justice MacDonald, who has been rather bit busy, like I suspect many of these high court judges have on these cases. Um, there was one by the name of Wigan um, Metropolitan Borough Council against W, and the citation for that is 2021 EWHC 1982. Um, the Wigan case was the one where uh, Mr Justice MacDonald in fact took the view that the placement that was being uh, suggested um, for the child in question was simply not good enough uh, and he refused to make the doll's authorisation. Uh, it's quite strident um, but if you do have a chance to read the case you will see the really extreme situation that the child in in the placement was in uh, he was in a hospital setting a paediatric ward um, which wasn't meeting his needs in any way uh, and I think uh, it, it was said by Mr Justice MacDonald that there was absolutely no positives said about the, the, the placement um, whatsoever um, this was a young person who was um, frequently trying to harm himself uh, he he was not being permitted um, a number of you know, the items that, that one, one, someone might want to have if they're staying in hospital. Um, the hospital itself uh, were having to utilise a huge amount of staffing power um, to manage his needs on the ward, which was taking away opportunities for other children, and they were having to cancel um, operations. In fact, uh, a description of um, his position on the ward was that uh, it was described by staff as harrowing, he feels like he is being caged and is frightened when police are called to the ward who require assistance and his behaviour becomes a safety risk to himself or others. At all times, he still requires an incredibly high level of supervision. He's restrained often and he's controlled by chemical sedation. Um, and in fact, the hospital who had him residing there were clear that there was no medical need for him to be there. Um, Mr Justice MacDonald, faced with either um, the young person remaining in that situation or 
the only other option would be for him, well, if the authorization was not was not granted, would be for him to be either on the streets or returning to his family home in circumstances where he'd indicated um, that he wanted to, to kill his dad, um, he didn't like him. Um, so quite a bold decision from Mr. Justice MacDonald, but quite frankly, uh, he said, um, it's not appropriate to make an order authorization, authorizing the deprivation of his liberty on the paediatric ward. Um, he found that the, that the restrictions imposed on him at that hospital ward constituted a deprivation of his liberty for purposes of Article 5. Um, and it was not in his best interest to grant it. So that was, I think, one of the first cases I've become aware of, of reported cases, um, where the, the, the High Court has simply said no. That, that was repeated more recently by Mr Justice Poole in a case um, of Nottinghamshire County Council against LH and PT. I'm just trying to find where I've popped the citation for that for you. Um, yeah, so that's um, 2021. EWHC 2584, uh, again, a similar situation, uh, just a completely disturbing set of facts when you read, read it. Uh, this was um, a 12 year old girl who the only placement the local authority could find for her was for her to be admitted to a acute psychiatric admission unit when she did not have a psychiatric condition. Um, so it, it's perhaps not difficult to imagine the sort of harm that, that could be caused to a child by that, but it was also exacerbating her needs, which are not particularly dissimilar to, to those expressed in the Wigan case. And again, um, Mr Justice Paul, having had regard to the decision of Mr Justice MacDonald, um, also said, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not going to authorise this. On the other um, end of the spectrum, again, Mr Justice MacDonald, um, he, I'm trying to find the uh, citation, I may have to come back to you on that, um, directed uh, providers to attend court in a relatively recent decision. Uh, this was a case where the local authority had a young person they needed to place. They had again uh, carried out extensive, extensive searches for provision uh, and had two potential placements who were declining um, to offer a place to the young person in question. Um, and what Mr Justice MacDonald did, and in fact, that's the North Yorkshire case, um, EWHC um, 2171 of 2021, um, directed the directors of the providers to attend court to explain the position. Uh, I don't know, as I speak to you, the podcast today, whether it had any effect. I haven't seen a reported case of the follow, follow up hearing where the directors of the providers attended court. But essentially, he was invited to direct them to attend to um, effect mediation and liaison between them and the local authority to try and find out if there was a way this child could um, obtain a place that they so desperately needed. So, uh, Yes, I, I think what, watch this space, but that might be uh, a useful suggestion to make if you're in, a, in the High Court and your local authority, if you're active with the local authority, is struggling to find a place for um, the young person who's the subject matter. While I've got your ear, I don't think it would be right of us to finish this podcast without giving a special mention to the Care Planning, Placement and Case Review England Amendment Regulations 2021. Um, again, not the easiest read, um, but in short, and then the main headline to take away from those regulations, which came into force in early September, is that a regulation 27A was created uh, to amend the original uh, regulations. And the 
the broad thrust of the, of the amendment regulations is the local authority are no longer um, permitted to place children under 16 in other arrangements. Now, other arrangements is the, is the new term for what previously referred to as unregulated placements. That has been considered um, by uh, the High Court in the Tameside um, Metropol Metropolitan Borough Council case against AM and others 2021 EWHC 2472, um, which did um, provide that the High Court can authorise placements in um, other arrangements for children under um, 16. So again, not much of a change to the law. The difference in practice is that the local authority now needs to make an application to the High Court for children under 16, where previously didn't have to. Right. So it's very much, it's very much watch the space, see what happens. Yeah. Um, well, thank you very much. And um, I won't deprive you of your liberty any longer um, on this podcast. Um, thank you so much. It's been really, really helpful. And um, I'm really glad that you read ReT so that I didn't have to. You are no so welcome. <laughs> um, listeners, thank you very much for listening. We'll be back soon with another topical podcast. Just series four continues uh, during this legal term. As ever, feedback, suggestions, and most of all, relentless praise are very welcome. Um, no, in all seriousness, please do get in touch. And until next time, thank you for, very much for listening and goodbye. Mm -hmm.